Coming to you from the American College of Emergency Physicians annual meeting in Boston, Massachusetts. This is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. I'm joined by Dr. Clifton W. Calloway. He's from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He received ASEP's Outstanding Contribution and Research Award for his more than two decades of research into brain resuscitation after cardiac arrest. He's Professor of Emergency Medicine and Vice Chair at the University of Pittsburgh Department of Emergency Medicine where he holds the Ronald D. Stewart Chair in Emergency Medicine Research. Dr. Calloway, welcome to you. Great. Thanks for having me. So before we get started uh, talking a little bit about the background through which you earned this award, um, tell me a little bit about how you came into emergency medicine, how you came to uh, ASEP, which I suppose is self-explanatory in coming into emergency medicine, but I don't want to presuppose. Right. So I actually became interested in emergency medicine when I was an undergraduate. And uh, at that time, I was very fascinated by research. And I had thought I'll probably go to graduate school after undergraduate and had uh, sort of uh, predilection that way towards research. Uh, but uh, one of my college roommates uh, actually said, let's take a first aid class. Couldn't find a first aid class, so we took an EMT class. And at the end of that, we had a uh, license in, in, uh, to be EMTs, and he said, well, let's get a job. So we got a job on an ambulance, and uh, this was kind of a lark for me, but uh, we became involved with EMS and started working, and pretty soon we're working full-time, and you know, doing doing classes uh, during the week and, uh, you know, riding the ambulance all weekend, and it was um, just addictive. Uh, and that was um, really what I wanted to do uh, from that point on. So it was EMS that brought me in to actually even going to medical school and uh, flirted with all the different specialties in medical school, but, you know, always came back to emergency medicine. <laughs> Almost seems like a... Uh a joint friendly competition in a way, spurring each other forward to continue on the MS. Did he also go into? Yep, he is also an emergency physician and <laughs> is uh, uh, medical director of a uh, hospital here on Cape Cod. <laughs> I love that story. Yeah. <laughs> um, why don't we turn then into your uh, research career? How did you get exposed into the research arm of emergency medicine? I had actually done, uh, I had been interested in doing research, and I was uh, uh, fortunate enough to do an MD-PhD program uh, through my medical school. And uh, my research at that time was in neuroscience, so I was very fascinated with how the brain worked and pharmacology of the brain and things that made the brain uh, either work well or, or uh, not work well. And so sort of levels of consciousness were, were the thing that I thought was, was fascinating. Um, when I went and was training in emergency medicine subsequently, the, the obvious application of that was that some people are in a coma. And so coma is, you know, a disruption of consciousness, the very thing I had done my graduate work studying, and uh, how to treat it. Um, I asked my, my teachers and mentors, well, you know, this, this woman's in a coma. What are we doing? And they're like, I don't know. You know, this is not, we don't have a treatment for that. And I found that just totally unacceptable, that, you know, there was a person whose obvious biggest problem was coma, uh, and in that case, coma after cardiac arrest, and that there wasn't uh, anything that experienced people knew to do. Um, and, you know, that's really the, the nidus of research, when you have a clinical situation where you are dissatisfied with the therapies you have and what you can offer the patient, that's when you're motivated to do research. Let me fix that. Right, right. And I imagine that must have been a huge part of your ultimately becoming a very instrumental uh, agent in both national and international resuscitation guidelines that are pushed out. You apparently are central to that. 
Uh, I am a I am a I'm a member of a very large team and a very large network of people who are equally passionate about um, making sure that uh, every patient gets the best care and that we really uh, move the needle so that we prevent untimely or premature death and disability. You know, and that's uh, uh, in our example in our in our case we're studying resuscitation and cardiac resuscitation. Um, but that's the general theme, I think, of emergency medicine is, you know, we want to prevent uh, uh, threats to life and limb uh, and things that could be prevented, could be fixed, could be improved if we, if we act in a timely uh, manner. Has it come a long way since you started working on it? Uh, very much. So in the past two decades, um, when we began to talk about cardiac arrest and resuscitation, we would always start with this slide, which was a very depressing slide. Survival after cardiac arrest hasn't changed in 30 years, and that was true right up to the 1990s. But now that same slide we all changed, and it's, uh, it says cardiac arrest survival has steadily increased for the past 15 years. And that's true in this country and every country that's kept uh, statistics over that period of time. Um, and there's no silver bullet. It's not been through any single intervention, but it's been through the development of systems of care, applying things that we knew worked, making sure that every patient gets them in a reliable manner, and then putting all the pieces together in a uh, concerted plan of action uh, that's steadily increasing survival. And that's, that's just tremendous to see that. Hmm. Have Good Samaritan Acts also increased along that time span, or... Uh, would you attribute most of the increases in survival to what happens once they get with, into a hospital in that golden window, say? No. Um, the biggest intervention uh, to improve survival, the strongest lever, is actually bystanders. Uh, you know, folks uh, activating the emergency system and then making sure that uh, they do something for the patient immediately. Uh, <clears throat> we need to have that whole system of care. Uh, but the first couple of links in sort of the chain of survival that we always uh, that we always promulgate in the American Heart Association's chain of survival, the first two or three links are all done by citizens who are not professional responders. They recognize the cardiac arrest. They uh, call 911. Now they can uh, pull a defibrillator off the wall and actually apply uh, the uh, the initial therapy. Um, we're uh, empowering people to do CPR even if they're only hearing about how to do it from the 911 operator, um, all of which is protected under Good Samaritan laws, state by state. They can only help the person, and those things I really think are what's, uh, what's driving uh, the increase. From the hospital, we're receiving people in much better condition, uh, and then, then it becomes easier for us to, uh, you know, to gild the lily and actually get the uh, folks who are on the fence and get them out of organ failure, get them out of coma, and uh, do some of the tricks we have. But, boy, you can really drop the ball if that first part of the system was never activated or was activated too late. Right, right. Um, well, why don't we turn to coma again since yeah. you talked. It was such a big part of what drew you into the field mm -hmm. and the research. Clearly, we've come a long way. Anybody who's been practicing can say we, we have made progress in that area, caring for people in that uh, spectrum. But there's a lot more to do. Uh, where are we now? The problem of the patient with brain injury is um, that there's no, you know, I, I tell families, you know, there's no salve, there's no pill, there's no nothing I have that, like, sort of grows brain for you. Um, we uh, do a great deal of our work to try to prevent secondary injury. So we manage the blood pressure, we manage the ventilator, we, we uh, manage temperature in ways that make the environment better for brain recovery. Uh, but it's... Um, 
you know, uh, still a situation where we don't have a, a cure or a support system or something that uh, can uh, uh, regenerate the brain or support the brain or, or cure the brain problem. And that's where a lot of our, our research is focused. You know, what are the molecular events? Are there particular things happening that actually a uh, drug or a therapy might, might reduce that damage? Um, more and more we, we recognize we, we made assumptions about what was happening in the brain after an injury uh, and that those assumptions were too simplistic, uh, that there's a lot more uh, physiology going on, a lot more, uh, m many more molecular events. Some of those may be amenable to treatment, and uh, I, don't, I don't know which one of the ones will, will blossom into something we bring to the bedside, but you know, it's very important that we, that we keep uh, looking under every stone. Interesting. I mean, not, put, not to put you on the hot seat, but yeah. any, any examples of some of these assumptions which just did not bear out over time that sort of took you back as you were monitoring over the, this sequence of time of researching where you said, you know, I always had that as a base assumption too, and it just doesn't mm -hmm. seem to bear out. Yeah. A uh, simple example would be brain swelling. Um, we would uh, meet people who, uh, say, had a cardiac arrest or had um, uh, some uh, event, and they have cerebral edema early on. We look at the CAT scan. We can see the brain is all swollen. It seemed obvious. So well, there's lots of dead cells. This is, you know, the brain is uh, is uh, is swelling because all the water is rushing into these dead cells. Um, so we peel that back. You know, it actually is probably more like a hypertensive urgency, you know, where um, some of that edema is vasogenic, and it's because the capillaries have all been leaky for the past hour or two, and uh, a whole bunch of fluids going into the brain. And by God, yes, if we just leave that alone, the person's brain will, in fact, die, and it will, in fact, um, uh, uh, have its circulation cut off, and, you know, the person will progress to a, to a terrible state. Now that I know that it's maybe not just dead cells, that there's still viable cells there and that they're suffering from brain edema, I have to look upstream and say, well, how could I have made that edema not happen in the first place? And, you know, if I catch it early enough, can I actually, you know, do some therapy to suck the water back out and make those still viable cells not die? Um, how big of a problem is it? You know, uh, in our series, 20% uh, of patients have some cerebral edema when they hit the hospital after cardiac arrest. So it's not every patient, but it's a lot of patients. And uh, in the past, we thought, oh, that's, that's just a bad sign. That's a sign of game, horses out of the barn, game's over, we should, you know, lay crepe. Not so. You know, this is an opportunity where you look at the physiology and say, huh, that's actually maybe something that there might have been a treatment I could have started in the ambulance so that this was not happening at all. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, if you're just joining us, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz, and we're at ASEP's annual meeting in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm with Dr. Clifton Calloway, and we're talking about everything to do with resuscitation brain research. Um, and uh, continuing on from there, actually, you give me a great segue. Uh, you talked about upstream. You talked about catching things early. Mm -hmm. I understand that you and your research team were strong proponents of, of trying to examine and look into hypothermia as a potential uh, preventative treatment for for um, brain protection in that sense. Tell me a little bit about that story, that mm -hmm. narrative that you, mm -hmm. that you guys and your team um, pushed these understandings through. Right, hypothermia had been uh, a treatment that uh, people have considered for um, all types of brain injury for over fifty years. 
So uh, it, was, it was well known that if somebody fell in the water, maybe were submerged for some length of time, you brought them back out and restored circulation, that they would tolerate it tremendously better than someone who was at normal temperature. And uh, by extension, people tried to lower the temperature after injuries. And um, in the laboratory, where everything's nicely controlled, it works every time. Um, it's a uh, it's a intervention that's always the positive control in animal studies. You know, you you use that as the as the intervention to show that you can detect a beneficial effect when you compare it to an experimental drug. Um, and we, myself included, did many laboratory studies uh, where we tried different temperatures and we found that lower temperatures for the first day or so of coma made uh, a variety of animals recover better. Uh, and it was a small step to take that to clinical trials. Uh, our colleagues uh, in Australia and in um, Europe did those clinical trials in the early 2000s um, and saw benefit compared to prior um, uh, treatment where folks were allowed to have whatever temperature. Um, and uh, many places adopted hypothermia as a therapy for coma. Recently, um, uh, other colleagues in uh, Scandinavia, uh, uh, Nicholas Nielsen, they've um, compared different temperatures. And uh, when they controlled folks with a temperature of 33 degrees or 36 degrees, they saw no difference in those two groups. Uh, everybody had temperature controlled, but, you know, it seemed like the absolute temperature was not the critical factor. Mm. What um, do you make of that? Yeah, I, I'm encouraged because their groups both have survival that is dramatically better than back in the control groups we had in the early 2000s. So a decade later, both of their intervention groups have the 50, 55% survival that the experimental groups had in the 2002 trials. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's true. I think that the precise temperature didn't matter, but, you know, in a, in a critical care milieu where temperature is part of the whole package that's addressed and patients are controlled uh, at uh, one of those temperatures, they do better. Um, our current recommendations say, you know, you should control temperature because the old way that we did prior to 2000, that didn't work so good. Now, it works much better if you control temperature, but it looks like it doesn't really matter if you pick 36 degrees or 33 degrees, pick one or the other. If you're uh, studying other um, types of diseases, traumatic brain injury, stroke, and so forth, you know that temperature affects some physiological processes that we think might be important. Uh, I mentioned brain swelling earlier, cerebral edema. Uh, if you lower the temperature, the brain swelling goes down. If you raise the temperature, brain swelling goes up. So if I have a patient and I've seen some signs of cerebral edema, I tend to pick a lower temperature rather than a uh, higher temperature. Um, if the person's having seizures, again, they're worse with high temperatures, better with lower temperatures. I might pick a lower temperature. But that's... Let's flip that's, that around, uh, though. What about the other, the other case? Is there any... Uh, what are the yeah. situations in which a higher temperature is advantageous? Oh, if you're bleeding. So if the person's got a bleeding risk or you uh, maybe are a fresh post-operative or GI bleeding was a part of the clinical picture, uh, then a higher temperature makes more sense because, you know, lower temperatures are going to make that worse. There's some debate about, well, what about sepsis? So if the person's, you know, uh, ragingly infected, um, white blood cells may not uh, work as well at a lower temperature. So that might be a, a, a piece of clinical information where you might choose a higher temperature rather than a lower temperature. What I won't do is just let that person go without uh, any control at all, you know, and I won't allow them to have a fever. 
the uh, uh, picking of which temperature might be better for which subgroup, well, that's the cutting edge. That's where research needs to be done now. So right, hopefully right. someone out there is you know, plotting the clinical trial in septic people, the clinical trial in seizing people right. uh, to find the yeah. optimal, optimal management strategy. Right. It's what comes to mind when you talked about that, uh, the study that did not find a real survival difference between mm-hmm. temperature control. So I take it it wasn't stratified at that time for necessarily the, the reasons by which the control was trying to be achieved? Yes. Uh, so in the most recent trial of 33 degrees versus 36 degrees, yeah, they, don't, uh, uh, they did not stratify. So it was uh, patients who were included uh, were randomly assigned to either temperature. Um, They've done a wonderful job of looking at uh, both a priori subgroups and post hoc subgroups, trying to see if there's any signal that the people who had one feature or another feature might have um, uh, had a differential benefit from one temperature versus another. They did not detect any, um, but all of that is um, is uh, statistical um, analysis um, separate from the primary hypothesis, and um, with 900 patients, you can only cut the data so many so many different ways. Oh, sure. um, so I should come up with a new hypothesis for you if I say, oh, you know, try this temperature management strategy versus another one. Um, though I think, we're, I think we all practice, uh, you know, we all practice with what we think from physiology many times way beyond uh, what we have randomized trials to tell us to do. True, true. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be all ears for your next hypothesis, of yeah, course. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, um, I want to just touch base on the post-cardiac arrest clinical service that mm-hmm. you've helped coordinate with the team um, that, from what I hear, cares for hundreds of patients. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that service. Yeah, this, is a, this has been a great collegial effort among many specialties at my uh, institution. And um, it really is, um, you know, one of the blessings of, of where I've worked is that we have not had silos of, uh, or uh, turf areas between specialties, but we've actually been able to look at the patient's experience and uh, create a service line that takes care of people um, across multiple specialties. Um, my uh, partners in the service uh, and I, you know, we're talking about all this research and helping to write guidelines and saying, you know, we should take care of patients a certain way. And really, you know, at one of those meetings, um, we said, well, you know, if we can't make sure that this reliably happens to the patients in our own shop, we've got no business telling, you know, other people that, you know, they should follow this guideline or that guideline. So we started a QI program. Uh, We followed patients. We would meet patients when they arrived at the emergency department when my partner was taking care of them. We'd go up to the ICU and we'd talk to the cardiologist and we'd talk to the intensivist and we would, uh, you know, kibitz. Um, they all looked at us and said, well, if you're going to kibitz, you better write a note and take responsibility for this and, you know, <laughs> dubbed us a consult service. Uh, and we uh, just started following the patients. Initially, it was um, uh, tens of patients per year. I'm at a academic medical center, so we had some referrals. But once we established that service line, Many hospitals started referring patients in, and uh, patients are now transferred specifically for that service line. And again, not for any one of us as a specialist or a physician, but for the whole service line that involves um, the emergency medicine uh, component, the interventional cardiology component, the cardiac ICU component, the neurological component, the rehab component, um, all of the pieces that are necessary to get a person through uh, a severe injury with multiple organs uh, affected. Um, 
this last year we have about uh, 250 patients who've come to our institution uh, for this particular service line. And um, survival has increased, um, and their long-term survival has increased uh, as a consequence, which is really, really gratifying. It is, and it's a, it's a wonderful way to cap off our, our conversation today. I am going to take as a life lesson uh, your quote that if you're going to kibitz, you better write a note, right. <laughs> which is a wonderful, wonderful exactly. life lesson. Indeed. I've been joined by Dr. Clifton Calloway from the University of Pittsburgh. We've been talking all about his work, his research, and the award that he won through ASAP. Again, this is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And Dr. Calloway, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for being interested. For access to this and other podcasts, come on down to ReachMD.com. And thanks, as always, for joining us.